Welcome back to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gil Parat. Today I'm going to be offering another round of internal medicine pearls. I would like to start off today's podcast offering a pearl in diagnosing a very common neurologic and pain condition we all see regularly called lumbar stenosis. Sometimes I hear people talk about it as if it's one condition, which it is not. The pain happens because of several possible etiologies, such as degenerative arthritis, disc degeneration or bulging, or traumatic changes in the lumbar vertebrae, osteophyte formation and hypertrophy of the ligamentum flavum are other possible etiologies. So lumbar stenosis actually refers to different anatomic etiologies of pain. Narrowing of the intraspinal or central canal is one cause. Narrowing of the neural foramen is another cause. Ultimately, whatever the cause, the miserable sharp pain occurs, and we think that is because of mechanical compression and ischemia of nerve roots. Lots of specialties see this condition, including back surgeons, neurologists, pain specialists, radiologists, and primary care. Hospitalists see this condition plenty because nerves control muscles. And when nerves are not working well, the muscles don't work well, and there could be frequent falling and clumsiness and functional decline and fractures, among other issues. In lumbar stenosis, low back pain often radiates into the legs or buttocks, and a numbness of the legs may occur. We term that radiation of symptoms pseudoclaudication or neurogenic claudication. It can be challenging to determine what is arterial peripheral vascular disease causing claudication versus neurogenic claudication. Well, a lot of us have been taught that sitting relieves the symptoms of neurogenic claudication because the act of sitting helps open up the vertebral narrowing. I have always been a bit hesitant to put too much emphasis on that history when a patient does tell me that sitting relieves symptoms, and that is because claudication symptoms from peripheral vascular disease are induced by exercise and relieved with rest, such as sitting. Blood flow returns to the muscle and the pain should go away, but lumbar stenosis pain is also often worse with activity and also relieved with rest. Therefore, we need a better pearl for clinically deciding what is vascular-induced pain versus pain radiating into the legs from lumbar stenosis. You can order an MRI of the lumbar spine, which you probably will, but any doc who has seen their share of cases of MRIs of the lumbar spine knows that a lot of uncertainty exists after getting a lumbar MRI for stenosis or for other reasons. Don't take my word for it. Instead, I will combine some quotes from the journal Radiology taken from an article titled Uncertainties in the Diagnosis of Lumbar Spinal Stenosis and the date of publication of that article was December 2011. The authors of that article said, and I'm quoting them, there is still a lack of consensus about the classification of observed anatomic abnormalities with respect to lumbar spinal stenosis 
despite the fact that several research groups have proposed classification systems. The main problem in verifying or ruling out spinal stenosis is the lack of broadly accepted distinct radiologic criteria with which to describe and quantify spinal stenosis. Substantial variability in intra and interreader reliability has been reported. There is a persistent uncertainty regarding the relationship between abnormalities observed at imaging and clinical symptoms. So that's the end of the quote. And when technology can't think for us, we are often forced to reconsider the diagnosis ourselves. Patients with lumbar stenosis will tell you that walking downhill worsens their pain. Likewise, physicians often advise patients with lumbar stenosis to avoid going downhills because it will aggravate the pain. But the opposite is often true about walking up hills. So if you put a patient on a treadmill, you can usually tease out vascular claudication from pseudoclaudication of nerve compression. Start the patient out walking on a level surface, then adjust the treadmill to add an incline angle. That incline should worsen vascular claudication and often will improve neurogenic claudication. All right, let's move on and consider five various quick nuggets of knowledge regarding rheumatologic diseases. First, if you suspect lupus nephritis, do not hesitate to start corticosteroids because you desire to first obtain a renal biopsy to prove it. You have plenty of time to get the biopsy done. Corticosteroids won't alter biopsy findings for at least six weeks. Second tip, the exact opposite is true in patients with systemic sclerosis, where corticosteroids can trigger a scleroderma renal crisis. Steroids for lupus nephritis are good. Steroids for scleroderma, bad. Tip number three, with Sjogren's syndrome, sometimes it can be much more serious than the unfortunate symptoms of dry eyes and dry mouth. B-cell lymphoma develops in about 5% of patients with Sjogren's syndrome, and it is the biggest reason Sjogren's syndrome patients have an increased mortality. Fourth rheumatologic tip, knee osteoarthritis is a plague of aging that is not going away, but one of the most modifiable risk factors for it is obesity. And while on the topic of knee osteoarthritis, Hospitalists see plenty of patients having joint replacements, and it is worth knowing that rehabilitation from knee replacement surgery takes longer than rehabbing from a hip replacement. Fifth tip. Hospitalists see lots of infections. Some patients develop post-infectious aseptic arthritis that we term reactive arthritis. A fact worth remembering is that infections involving the mucous membranes of the gastrointestinal tract and the urogenital tract are the big players in causing reactive arthritis. Us hospitalists may not see much chlamydia urethritis, but we see a ton of Clostridium difficile and enough of the other GI tract bacterial infections like Salmonella and Shigella. So when your patient with a bacterial gastrointestinal infection 
then develops arthritis days to weeks after the infection, it probably is directly related. And now for some breaking news. Geneticists are very close to finding the gene that provokes their desire to discover new genes. Let's change direction to make a brief point about type 1 diabetes and insulin pumps. A lot of people think that the best patients eligible for an insulin pump are those who have already proven to manage their care with a track record of excellence. And those that have proven themselves to manage their diabetes should be allowed to have an insulin pump, in my opinion. However, the reverse isn't necessarily true. Poorly controlled diabetics, the ones we frequently see in the hospital, are a very reasonable population to consider for insulin pumps. I like the way this was summarized in a review in the New England Journal of Medicine from April 26, 2012, in an article titled, Insulin Pump Therapy for Type 1 Diabetes, in which the authors stated the following, and I'm quoting them, Among patients who switch from insulin injections to insulin pump therapy, the most important determinant of the benefit of pump therapy with respect to glycemic control is the baseline glycated hemoglobin level, with the greatest effect seen in patients with the worst control at baseline. For example, the expected mean decrease in the hemoglobin A1c is about two percentage points when the baseline hemoglobin A1c is 10, whereas it is zero percentage points when the hemoglobin A1c is seven. So that's the end of the quote. Therefore, going against the previous common sense beliefs of some like myself, the data shows that our uncontrolled type 1 diabetics may derive even more benefit in terms of sugar control with an insulin pump than our well-controlled diabetics. It is for these types of reasons that the writer Victor Hugo said, common sense is in spite of, not the result of, education. If we all practiced using only common sense, we would get a whole lot wrong every day. Moving on, there was an interesting article in the May 13, 2013 New England Journal of Medicine, and it was titled, Management of Antithrombotic Therapy in Patients Undergoing Invasive Procedures. Obviously, these are complicated issues, and management is getting more challenging with the ever-expanding anticoagulant agents available. You know, the deceased author Rebecca West, who, by the way, Time Magazine in 1947 called her indisputably the world's number one woman writer, and she once stated that the trouble about man is twofold. He cannot learn truths which are too complicated, and he forgets truths which are too simple. Therefore, getting back to simple basics with anticoagulation the one oral anticoagulant most of us have the longest experience with is warfarin. And most of us traditionally stop it five days before major invasive procedures, whether or not we are bridging with other agents. So tradition is one thing, but I was very pleased there's also data to back that practice up. And to quote that May 13, 2013 New England Journal of Medicine article, the author stated, and I'm quoting him, 
An INR of 2.0 to 3.5 corresponds to therapeutic anticoagulation, and 93% of patients with an INR within this range have an INR of less than 1.5 approximately five days after warfarin therapy has been discontinued. The INR should be obtained within 24 hours before the procedure and corrected with vitamin K if needed, except in the presence of mechanical heart valves. The INR value at which the risk of bleeding increases is unknown, but the risk is assumed not to be elevated when the INR is 1.5 or less and is assumed to be elevated when the INR is more than 2.0. Bertrand Russell said, science is what you know, philosophy is what you don't know. So again, it is nice to know that our philosophy of stopping Coumadin five days before major procedures will work for 93% of our patients, and I appreciate that nugget of science. I also appreciate the time you take in listening to this podcast. Go out there and have a great day.